All right, we're just getting set up here. Let the sync, the feed sync up for a couple seconds. We we'll be getting, yeah, we are live. It takes a couple seconds to really sync up the feed, though. So let's give another five. Okay. All right. Well, welcome to Chariot Tech Tech Chat Tuesday. Did it again for uh, Tuesday, March 29th, 2022, whatever the year is. I'm Ken Rimple. Sue John Capadia. <laughs> and today I'll learn how to spell my name too. Maybe that'll be useful. We are here to talk about all things tech. We've got some uh, interesting uh, articles for you to, uh, to review, and we have a special guest interview today uh, from one of our ETE speakers. But before that, uh, I want to uh, bring my screen up here. Let me do that real quick. And we'll talk through a few things, such as Chariot's blog. So first of all, if you're interested in what we're writing about, you can hit the Chariot blog. Uh, it's at chariotsolutions.com slash blog in our little resources section, where you can also find our podcasts such as this one and ETE presentations and such. Uh, we have an article this week uh, from last week, Spring Cloud Sleuth, uh, a uh, approach to adding distributed tracing uh, from a brand new employee, Steve Wood. So that's a good one to check out there, uh, talking about like a special feature of Spring that has like a basically a distributed tracing key to things you're looking at. So that's really cool. We have blog posts there all the time. Uh, so that's something to look at from us if you're curious. We also have a ton of content on YouTube. If you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions, you'll see uh, our main run of everything. And if you hit our playlists, which is the real secret thing here, you can watch all of last year's Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise. You could take a look at uh, women speakers throughout the years for us. You can look at a super playlist of all of the ETE videos we have online. And then you can see various shows, including Tech Chat Tuesdays. That's us right there. Uh, and you can certainly subscribe to uh, any of those pieces of content and be notified. So please do. You can also hit us up of all places on things like Spotify. Uh, you'll notice there's Chariot Solutions there. You can hit us up on YouTube. Uh, you can hit us up on uh, iTunes. Uh, and the music app, if you search for the podcast app for Chariot Tech Cash, you can find us there too. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Yes, please subscribe. And hey, do me a favor, leave us a review or two, would you? Um, good ones only, please. <laughs> but if you go to the uh, podcast app in, uh, YouTube, or in uh, iTunes, we really don't have more than one review, mostly because I haven't pushed it. So please hit up Chariot Tech Cast there, and please give us a positive review. We'd love to have that. Main thing coming up that we're all focused on at Chariot is the Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference. It's virtual this year, April 19th to 20th. Uh, it's nice and low cost right now until the first. Uh, however, we do have a special code. If you register and you enter Tech Chat, all capitals, uh, you will get $25 off the conference. So that'll work and uh, that'll give you a little bit of a break. Um, if you want to, yeah, if you want to register multiple people, you can contact us. Uh, we have companies that do that periodically. They send 15, 20 people. Uh, it's a great show. So that's coming up. Uh, and we'll talk about one of our speakers in a little bit, Carson Gross, uh, who's speaking about HTMX, and that's our feature for today. But first, let's go through some news. All right. So in Bleeping Computer and many other places, uh, there was this note about an emergency Google Chrome update. So it was a zero-day attack. Get the ad out of the way here. Uh, Sergio Gatlin is the writer of this, uh, just kind of pointing this out. If you have not updated Chrome recently, go to the Chrome About menu and take the update. 
because there's a high severity zero day bug out there in the wild. Um, and uh, so <laughs> I don't know what's going on in that video. Uh, it's a, a security advisor they published on Friday of last week, I believe it was. Uh, and so there it is. Um, it doesn't really go into much detail, I think, about what the actual bug is. They're trying to just make sure you get it going quickly. Yeah, access to bug details and links may be kept restricted until majority of users are updated with a fix. Now there's like, I think, I, what is it, 3 billion people? That can't be right. But many millions of people are using Chrome. Uh, and so they want to keep this kind of quiet is actually what the exploit is that's causing the trouble. Um, at least they did earlier. CVE 2022-1096 is the exploit. Uh, it has an exploit against it. So update Chrome. Because if you don't update Chrome and you hit the right site, they're going to hack you. Yeah. There's a few things that I keep automatic updates on for. Because um, I generally don't like just getting software downloaded without my knowledge. But these happen so often in general, just the updates and security patches. I do leave Chrome's uh, updates automatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really important. All right, so that's the big warning. Please update Chrome if you haven't already. Next thing, uh, I've really been enjoying uh, a lot of these little Rust-based tools that have come out, kind of like command line replacement tools. Um, so the typical command line diff isn't super exciting, um, but uh, there's one called Diff-tastic, uh, and it's syntax-aware. So, uh, you know, that's what it looks like, but I actually got it working. So where is my sample here? Um, so here's your typical, it's color syntax code just because I'm using, um, you know, a git diff here as an example. So this is your typical git diff. You know, you just do git space diff, whatever with a standard built-in diff. Um, and here is the same thing with diff-tastic. So you can see it's it's really doing a good job at showing contextually where the changes are, syntax highlighting everything. Here's all my new code. Um, there we go. So, and all I did to set it up was I followed the, the, the guide. So there's a uh, Rust utilities have this thing called Cargo, right, diff-tastic. And so when I installed that and I made sure that the cargo bin director was in the path, then that utility shows up. Uh, and then I just basically follow the instructions of the website, which we'll post in our links. Uh, and there was just an export, a GIF external diff. And that makes it so that GIF, uh, that diff uses it. Uh, the tool is called diff T to replace diff. And there are a bunch of these types of utilities out there. So, uh, for example, uh, there's a thing called uh, Awesome Rust, and a lot of these languages and platforms have an awesome page that someone maintains. Uh, but this is a curated list of Rust code and resources, and you can see there are a whole bunch of utilities. Um, it probably isn't in this list that would figure, right? Um, but there are a bunch of tools out there, one of which that I installed uh, was Prox. So that's a replacement for PS, for example. So if you're a Unix person, you like PS as a process status tool, there's an uh, there's a replacement tool for that. There's a whole bunch of these out there. There's like a, a helpful directory stricter uh, switcher tool that knows uh, what directories you've been in. So you can type like little shortcuts to the names of them and immediately get there. So if you're interested in looking at some kind of enhanced command line tools, there's just a ton of them out here in this Rust unofficial. 
also tools software. we're building and everything else. So pretty cool. Use Java from Rust. Interesting. Yeah. Some of these I don't know. Um, or you use Ruby from Rust. Code at all? What's that? Did you take a look at the diff tastic code at all? I did not know. Mm -mm. But doo -doo -doo, here it is. It's open source, so you could check it all out. Yeah, neat stuff. All right, go ahead. All right, What's so yours? I don't know um, if folks know about this, but there is a Digital Markets Act, which has a lot of stuff in there. I'm going to focus on the privacy and, and encrypted messaging stuff, but Basically, in generally in Europe, so this article on um, platformer.news is talking about this act and how it's going to impact uh, apps like WhatsApp that do encrypted messaging um, in a negative way. So in Europe, two big ideas currently hold sway among people regulating technology companies. One is that it should be easier to compete with tech giants. They're, they're big, big movement and effort there around trying to break up monopolies, trying to allow smaller uh, companies to be on a level playing field with larger giants like Facebook and Microsoft and Amazon, Google. Um, and that a good way to accomplish this is to force their services to play nicely with others. So the Digital Markets Act gets into specific details about what size company and revenue has to reach, at which point it has to be interoperable with smaller services. So um, this landmark piece of legislation on last Thursday that would reshape the ways in which tech giants compete with their rivals. The act applies to what it calls gatekeepers, defined as any platform that has a market capitalization of 75 billion euros or more than seven and a half billion um, euros in European revenue. So, so like, for example, iMessage and WhatsApp, they would fall under this and would have to make their services in Europe interoperable with other messaging services. It would not impact Signal or, or Telegram. So the idea being here is that if WhatsApp, which is known for using Signal and being completely encrypted, has to now become interoperable with other services, they have to open up their systems to these smaller players. And it may undo a lot of the things around encrypted messaging and privacy that these apps tout. Um, and recently, for example, um, like protesters in Russia, um, their phones, et cetera, were confiscated. They were gone through, messages gone through. So you can see that these kind of these kind of, uh, this kind of legislation can have a serious impact on uh, privacy and communications. Um, it's kind mm -hmm. of scary, actually. So I'm going to closely follow how, how this plays out uh, because it will it definitely impact what I use. I, I have WhatsApp on my phone. I have Telegram and Signal on my phone. Um, and I use all three because there's different people that I, I that use different apps. So I kind of have to have all three on there. Uh, but I may, you know, if this is if this goes through fully and Facebook can't push back on it, I may stop using WhatsApp. We'll see. I don't know. And then you get to use another one and suddenly it becomes really, you know, financially viable. Suddenly that would have to conform. Yeah. You'd have to switch again. It's just, uh, that's an interesting way to look at it too. It's like, okay, well, once you get big enough, you now have to share with others. So like, mm -hmm. I can, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem fair, but we'll see. Mm, interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that one up. Otter AI, which is a really interesting, like AI transcription tool. Yeah. So what is it doing now? So, for folks that don't know about Otter AI, um, it's been around for maybe a couple of years now, and you can use it to basically transcribe um, audio, meeting audio, namely. So you can have it running, and it can listen into your conversation, and it can transcribe it in real time. And it does a pretty decent job of the transcription. I've used it once or twice just to hack around with it um, mm -hmm. about a year ago. 
So because of the pandemic and everyone working remotely, they've been gaining more and more market share. And they said now it's expanded beyond just individual users or personal use. Companies are using it. Professionals are using it. So it's getting more enterprise features. And what they're trying right now is to be able to add AI-generated meeting summaries, which they have a long way to go, they, they themselves admit, but um, it's already proven useful in some context. So uh, they mentioned the company's software looks at a lot of different factors to decide what are the most relevant points from a meeting. Um, they look at topic words people use, they look at speaker dynamics, who's talking, what topics they discuss, when they change a topic. So it seems they're using different signals. Uh, this is something I find really interesting. In addition to summaries, Otter also offers a breakdown of who spends the most time in a meeting talking. <laughs> I want to see that one. <laughs> I really want to see that too. Um, and then, so I, I, I went to the website because I was looking at their security and stuff, you know, especially after the Digital Markets Act. I'm like, well, they have a lot of information. They're listening to all these meetings, exactly like what are their privacy policies and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. We say that we train our proprietary artificial intelligence technology on aggregated de-identified audio recordings. So they are using recordings that people that, that go through their service that you use for transcription. They aggregate and de-identify it apparently to train their algorithm. Only with your explicit permission will we manually review certain audio recordings to further refine our model training data. Even then, though, with that explicit permission... That kind of scares me. I mean, obviously, is that like a switch for the whole thing that that features on now and everything you do from that point forward it has it, or is it per talk? Uh, it looks like if they're having issue with transcribing something like a specific recording or a piece of a recording where the what they generate doesn't match what truth is. I guess they're trying to improve their algorithm, and they can ask, "Hey, do we have permission to manually review a snippet so we can try to refine our model training data?" Right. Good point. Interesting. It's scary because the fact is the data is there, it's encrypted, but if you give them permission, they can, they can get it. So they, like, it's always stored there and they have it. it so that, that part of it scares me because like that can change based off of policy, oh, yeah. based off of company leadership. If it gets acquired by someone else who has different policies, who knows? Um, right. Yeah. They have other, uh, like Google and Facebook is trying these things too, but they make an interesting point at the end of the article where, like Google, they make 99% of their money from ads. So they don't, they don't care about this enough. Or, or, or he's like, if they really want to, they can, they can roll out all these features to a larger user base faster than Otter AI could develop because they already have the data and the teams to be able to go do it. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm yeah, curious about though. Maybe we'll try this out one day just on like a one-on-one -on -one meeting between us. It'd be interesting to do it during the podcast too, like fire it up, let it run, you know, take the audio of the podcast and see what it does. So that could be fun too. It'd be nice to get textual transcripts of each podcast. And if that makes it easy, could be fun to add that to our stream. If you've been using Otter AI or any other tool like it, please hit us up on our at TechCast Twitter account. Um, you know, tweet to us and let us know you're using these things. Uh, curious what you think. Yeah, thanks, James Vincent from The Verge for this article. Awesome. All right, you have one more. Code edit. Um, so this is, I don't know how, how much progress they've made on this, but it's purely open source native Mac OS using Swift UI to build a code editor, and they're looking for contributors. So I found it interesting just going through the Swift UI code, um, and it sounds like anyone can get on board and start contributing to it. I haven't 
I haven't downloaded it or installed it or played around it with myself, built it. Um, but I'm always interested in how editors are coded. There's just so much neat things that go into an editor. And looking at Swift UI is so much better than looking at Objective-C and other uh, variants back in the day for Cocoa development. If you just look at the Swift UI code, it's so much cleaner and easier to follow. Um, that That's actually the reason I, I kind of started looking at the code. Um, so it's kind of cool to see server-side Swift UI for desktop apps on Mac. Very cool. Yep, GitHub.com code edit app, code edit, neat. All right, well, so our feature today, we're going to be, uh, during the next couple of weeks, uh, as long as people uh, sign up, we've invited about five or six of our speakers. Uh, and the first one that has said yes to talking to us is Carson Gross. Um, let me just show you from the ETE site. I'll show you his uh, uh, session here. I would use search, but you know, why not just search for the web browser? Um, so his talk, um, he's out in Montana working remotely uh, with his own company, Big Sky Software. His talk uh, at ETE is called A Return to Hypermedia, Solving JavaScript Fatigue Using the Fundamental Architecture of the Web. The reason he's talking is because he built a tool called HTMX. Um, and so HTMX is a hypertext-based scripting engine so that you don't have to write a lot of JavaScript to get basic things done. And we talked about this in the interview. Uh, it's kind of like an antidote to using Webpack and large uh, JavaScript frameworks. That's interesting. Well, yeah. That quote that you had there from him sounded a lot like, just imagine like Roy Fielding or Tim Berners-Lee saying something yeah. like that. Right, right. Well, and actually he brings up uh, Roy Fielding a lot uh, in his uh, research. He's going back to the HTTP spec and like the fact that HTML and HTTP already have this stuff covered. Uh, so that's his principle. Like, why do I have to write this giant complicated JavaScript? And while we're talking about it, I'm just going to bring this up. Um, Big Sky Software. That's him. Uh, and the projects he has also include something called, you'll like this, HyperScript. And HyperScript is HyperCard-inspired uh, dynamic scripting DSL for HTML. So you don't have to go into all the JavaScript. Yeah. yeah. Looks very hypercardy. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll play this interview we did last week with uh, Carson and then uh, we'll kind of wrap up right after that. But uh, Miles, take it away. Hey, thank you for, for being our first uh, person to kind of highlight their talk for Philly Emerging Tech. We really appreciate it. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, so what we're doing uh, is we're just kind of talking to about five or six speakers right before the show. We do this every year. Just yep. kind of get a feel for who you are, your background, uh, get people excited about seeing your talk. Um, sure. But I was watching a few of your interviews to kind of prep for this and looking and playing around with HTMX and that is a cool API, and I, can, I, I want to talk to you about kind of the evolution of your thinking, how sure. you started with it, what you were going to do. But yeah. so first of all, looking at your bio, uh, you've been around a long time. You had a company that you recently sold, yep. uh, and now you're working for yourself, uh, yeah. Big Sky Software, right? So yep. why don't we talk a little bit about your, your career and like how you kind of evolved um, your web uh, programming ideas? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I graduated in 99, I think somewhere around there. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I was doing a lot of web programming sort of early on. Um, and it was, uh, you know, back in the day it was CGI scripts and, um, uh, like Java applets. It was really, you know, it was kind of, <laughs> it was just, days. it was an old, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was pretty, uh, it, you know, there were good and bad things about it. Um, I actually yeah. like Java quite a bit still. Um, yeah. uh, but, um, and uh, I ended up working kind of in that original dot com boom. I caught the tail end of it right after school, sort of right before everything crashed. Mm -hmm. um, but I got some experience doing basically J2E development at that point. Um, and then I worked kind of, I worked at a bank for a little bit, just doing programming. And I went to grad school at Stanford and I really, I wanted to focus on programming languages, um, because I was really at the point at that time, I was really interested in programming languages. And mm -hmm. so I, I got a master's at Stanford with a focus on programming languages. Um, and then I, when I graduated, I went to work for a company called Guidewire, which was, they did, they do sort of, they, they sell software to insurance companies, but they're big enterprise style java application you know it's installed internally they've moved to the cloud since but it was mm -hmm. all at the time it was all in, uh, installed internally and um and so i worked and they had their own web framework that was sort of a custom framework um and i worked on that kind of tangentially it wasn't my main focus i mainly worked on a scripting language that they had there called gosu um and um but i you know i kind of always kept a foot in the web world i was always poking around um and i had never been a big fan of javascript as a language person i'd never been a big fan of javascript but at the same time saw these waves of javascript kind of washing over the industry there was like d i don't know if you're old enough you remember dhtml back in yep. like 2005 right mm -hmm. like that was big thing and then it kind of crashed and um but then it you know resurfaced and uh i eventually left guidewire and started up lead dino which was the startup that um, we just recently sold and that was a rails app so i i had always been playing around with rails and I, there were things about the rails and the ruby world that i liked better than java um but this in you know in 2010 if you were starting up a software company you were doing it on rails yep absolutely i remember those days yeah, exactly. So it was just the thing everyone was using. Um, and uh, as I was building out, uh, so I was building Rails apps and TurboLinks was kind of a thing, but not really. It was just starting to come into existence. Um, and uh, I, jQuery, you know, everyone used jQuery in 2010. And um, I was working on a, uh, on a big table that I needed to sort. And I was trying to do it in jQuery. Uh, I was just trying to do it in jQuery. Yeah, and, it was yeah. and it was a huge table and it, the DOM was super complicated and uh, it was taking forever. And jQuery had this thing, I think it's called get or fet, I forget what it's called, but jQuery had this thing where you could just you could just get HTML from the server side and like poke it into the DOM. Yeah. And I finally, like, after pulling my hair out, I don't have any hair anymore. I'm in the same boat as you, but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. but, uh, uh, I just was like, I'm just going to try it servers. I'll just try and do the sort server side and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it was super fast. And so I got really excited about that. And I built up my own little wrapper around jQuery that kind of did this transactions in HTML with the server. Um, and, uh, I eventually ended up, uh, formalizing that realizing, Hey, there's, there's a library here. And so that became uh, intercooler JS. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in 2000, I think 2013, I released that. 
And uh, it was, you know, a wrapper around, it, it was based on jQuery. So it had this jQuery dependency. Um, but the big idea there was to use HTML attributes to drive Ajax interactions with the server. Um, and uh, so I, I just, increasingly like formalize that notion of like hey let's just use attributes with like url you know with relative urls to grab content to post and all this stuff so and i want to I, interrupt you there while we're talking yeah. about it. so that's about the time <laughs> that's about the time you know angular js for example was like one of the things that yep. kind of broke out of the you know jquery salting the earth with you know yeah. jquery lookups and expressions and functions yeah. into like these single page applications right and That's so right. around 2013 google went maybe we should make this more complicated yeah they did. <laughs> 2014 and then they went yeah. with their you know you know webpack enabled stuff and then react came about yeah. um it's yeah. interesting that like so one of the things that the angular js world did at the time was they were using custom attributes on html Yep. And I see that your intercooler was using like, for example, you have like IC dash post dash two yep. as an attribute on a hyperlink yep. tag that would run a URL endpoint and replace content. Yep. So I see that you kind of took the same concepts. I'm not sure where you grabbed them from. If Angular was a, an interesting way of looking at a domain specific language built into HTML or not, but I like you looked at something and saw it getting more complex and more all about itself, I think is what the term would be like, you know, JavaScript, you got to live in JavaScript. Yep. And your thinking even back then was this is the wrong uh, approach for getting things done for you. Yeah. Was there a pivotal moment where you're just like, I, no, I, I can't keep going trying yeah. to add more script libraries. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I remember at Guidewire, I got accused, I was on the platform team. So a lot of really heavy hitting engineers. And uh, I remember very vividly, um, I was pretty young um, at the time um, and there was a senior engineer and we were working on some design problem or whatever. And I was like, this is just too crazy, man. Like we can't do this. And he looks yeah. at me and he goes, you know what your problem is? You give up too easy. And so mm. I feel I feel challenge like, accepted. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna give up even more easily then, buddy. I'm Irish. Don't tell me I can. Don't tell me stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so I just, you know, I looked at Angular and I liked the I liked the attribute stuff. That was new to me. This idea, hey, let's use attributes. But mm -hmm. then it completely moved outside of the hypermedia world. And at the time, I didn't really. So uh, you know, I have to admit, in 2013, I didn't have a very good theoretical basis for integral it was just easier for me to do mm -hmm. um but over time what i came to understand was that that there was really a fork at that point in web development where we abandoned the hypermedia model which at the time again i didn't understand super well i understand it pretty well now mm -hmm. um, so we abandoned that and we went with this more thick client RPC, you know, there's been this weird evolution of JSON APIs and we're finally admitting that they're RPC and adopting RPC techniques around them. Um, but there was a split. And so just almost out of obstinance and like my unwillingness to deal with the complexity of things like Angular, I just said, look, I'm just gonna try going this way. Um, and yeah. so Intercooler grew out of that. And then over time, I came to understand because people, you know, smarter people than me pointed out to me, hey, you know, you're really staying in a restful hypermedia world and so now i you know i, I fundamentally appreciate that distinction and hgmx and intercool hgmx is really intercooler 2.0 mm -hmm. i basically pulled out the jquery dependency so it's a standalone library now um, but both of those libraries are 
hypermedia oriented libraries. They want to interact with a server in the same way that the original model of the web worked. Uh, yeah, thank you, Roy Fielding, for that. He was right from the beginning um, yeah. from that perspective. You know, he still, I mean, he it, still applies techniques. Yeah, exactly. I think it's almost a category error to say he was right because he was he was mm -hmm. describing it. You know, he was just he was just saying this is what we built. Right. That's it. Right. And uh, so it's like you know, it's like he's the guy who built it. So I think he's probably in a pretty good position to to uh, to to say what he had just built or he sure. was one of. You know, there were obviously a lot. Of, of course, involved, yeah. But, um, so uh, you know, I just I I feel like I kind of stumbled into it on accident because I was just again maybe a little stubborn and contrarian. Um, but uh, now I you know I very much appreciate and especially that the idea of the uniform interface and and rest which you know maybe i'll talk about in my talk but mm -hmm. um, it, it just makes for very flexible software in a way that when you see people um uh um be very upset about the fact that uh trying to deal with the management of uh json api changing like versioning json apis every time yeah. i see that i'm like you know what you should use <laughs> you should use hypermedia because in hypermedia, content back. you yeah. don't need to like the, the content is self-describing you don't have to you can change it all you want buddy it's all good so it's true a, yeah sorry ahead. i didn't mean to interrupt you go ahead no no, no. yeah yes yeah. so my thought was like you know it's a pendulum right like we started with i mean if we go way back we started with green screens and dumb clients and then we yep. got pcs and everyone said oh put the half the application on the pc and we have client server and then some crazy yep. person three-tier client server and then it imploded <laughs> and the web came out and the web is all server and then the yep. web got javascript and jquery and became a yep. little more client and then it became fat client and this is almost pushing back a little bit the pendulum towards content, like you said, hypermedia as the state of the application where your your tags contain enough of the information to hold the state um, and then communicate with the server in a way where it says, give me more state and that state's in a hypermedia format. Exactly. So I like the way that it, it's it's a good alternative to like a, a, a you know, an, a, a single page application platform like Angular or um, React or Vue. Have you had people that have converted over and told you what their experiences were? Yeah, well, you know, there's survival bias. Like anyone who's going to talk to me is going to mm. say, hey, this was great. So, um, and I've seen some, you know, comments that are like, oh, it worked okay for this. But, and it's not a silver bullet at the end sure. of the day. It's, a, it's, it's just an architectural style. Um, and mm -hmm. it works really well for some stuff and not so well for other stuff. So, um, you know, if I were looking at something like Google Sheets, um, you know, some sort of online, very highly dependent, you know, you change a cell here and like 15 other cells update, something like that's going to be really hard to synchronize. Roy Fielding would say uh, coarse grain with uh, via coarse grain um, HTTP interactions, right? Because mm -hmm. that's just, it's fiddly. There's a lot of little stuff to go wrong. On the other hand, something like an email client, like Gmail, for example, um, there's not a lot of coarse grain interactions going on, or there's not a lot of fiddly interactions, I should say, excuse me. Right. Um, and so that's something that's a, a, an application that I think could be uh, implemented pretty uh, effectively in something like HTMX. And, you know, I, I'm not a purist about this sort of stuff. Um, one of the motivations or secondary motivations of HTMX is that I disliked 
seeing JavaScript eating the world. Um, mm -hmm. And I want there to be a lot of, I like programming languages. I, I don't like Ruby, but I like that Ruby exists. Mm -hmm. um, and say Lisp, like I don't, I'm not gonna use Lisp, but I want Lisp to exist. And I want people who care about Lisp or Python or whatever, um, to be able to use those programming languages and participate in web development without just producing a dumb JSON terminal, which is what a lot of web uh, infrastructure is reduced to these days. Yeah. Um, and so HTMX, because we're returning to hypermedia, because it's the hypermedia exchange, it takes that pressure off of you of, you know, if you like Go or whatever, they're Haskell, we've got some Haskell people, lunatics that are doing Haskell <laughs> web development, Python, Java, yeah, 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 you know, the whole thing, it's like, mm -hmm. fine, so you can stay in that world and just use hypermedia for your exchange. And, and that's uh, a good point, because like, if you think about it, if some this whole term full stack, right? Because it, who, what is the full stack? It keeps growing every hour yeah. and there's so much to learn and it does take a long time to get good at most aspects of the full stack. You know, even like, for example, for me, I'm not a great CSS person. So I struggle sure. with that, yeah. you know, so what is it? So the less you have to use to get the job done, if you're starting an application, if you're a strong server programmer and you do yeah. Django and you can output HTML and Django, you just add this and now you've got the majority of what you need for a, a basic application with good interactivity, right? Yeah, that's right. And again, it depends on the application. Of course. Right? Yeah. So, and it also, you know, like what I was getting at earlier is that I'm okay with HTMX being just a component within a larger application. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you have a settings page, that's just dumb forms, posting things to a server. Well, that's, you know, wheelhouse stuff for HTMX. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not right for the main application, or maybe there are parts of your application that need something a little bit stronger, but you can, you can reduce the complexity, at least of, you know, the stuff around your main app quite a bit by using something like HTMX. And you're exactly right that what you're able to do um, because you're going to be producing HTML anyways, right? HTML yeah. is just part of the stack, like accept it, move on with your life. If you can yeah. make that part of your stack, more powerful. And if you can do it in a way that doesn't add a lot of uh, conceptual complexity, which I hope HTMX does not, um, then what you've done is you've, you've you basically taken something that has to be there anyways, you've made it more powerful and you can drop these middle tiers. You can drop routing, client-side routing and all, just drop all that stuff. Just use yeah. the server um, and uh, you do, you get a much simpler stack. Um, and, you know, if you can achieve the usability that you want using that, then you've got, you know, a much more usable uh, or a much more maintainable system. And the possibility of full stack development, once again, becomes plausible in a yeah. way that it's not when you've got this hyper specialization of front end and back end and this JSON API split between them. Um, well, I got one for you. We were talking about all this stuff. You were talking to, you were doing an interview with someone from JetBrains uh, last year, I think it was uh, for Paul. the Python group. Yeah, yeah I think it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, you guys were talking about some of the things that are just dirt simple compared to what they were if you're doing it on, let's say, a React or Angular app, which I'm very familiar with, um, like security. You know, yeah. we have to deal with JSON web tokens and, you know, and expiring them and renewing them and all that and holding them somewhere. And you're like, I just know. use cookies and HTTP. That's all you got. And it, I'm like, it, oh, it, yeah, uh, <laughs> those yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, it is actually way easier than you might think. I've got mm -hmm. people that come to me and they're like, well, how do you do security? And I'm like, how do you like not the web do does? 
how do you not do security? <laughs> it's right. just, that's the thing that the thing does. It's this was a solved problem and it only yeah. became, you know, and this is, I think, a danger that you run into. We're developers and so we like abstraction. And so mm. we're constantly looking for places like, oh, we run into a problem, let's add an abstraction. And, um, you know, I just, I think that that's good. And so, you know, I'm an Aristotelian at the end of the day, sometimes that's good. You got to be balanced about it, but there are times, and I think we're in one right now with the web where the best thing to do is just to say, I'm just going to cut this whole thing out. Like, forget about it. Let's mm -hmm. like go back to basics and let's think about hypermedia and how that worked. And, you know, if we do that, it's not going to be right for everybody because nothing's right for everybody, but. Uh, it is going to save an awful lot of complexity in many cases. And if, if it fits your application domain, then guess what? You're going to be able to take all that complexity that you normally would be dumping into a crazy front end library and uh, dump it into domain logic that's actually adding value. You know, the thing that's actually, because, you know, everyone, if everyone's got a React app, React apps are no longer a differentiator. It's yeah. like, what you're doing, it's your, your special sauce on the server that's going to differentiate you from your competitors. So, um, so that's my. So now let's talk a little bit about you have another one out there, another library that I you might tangentially reference in your talk or not. I don't know, but yeah. HyperScript, which yep. actually harkens back to HyperCards language, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, which is cool. So this is like, is would you call this like a DSL for event-driven JS, basically? Yeah. A simple domain-specific logic it, keyword it is. thing. Yeah, it is. It's a DSL for sure. Mm -hmm. That used to be a big thing. You're old enough. To I know. Remember. I'm old. Two thousands. <laughs> like you know, My everyone hip. was DSL. This you just made a DSL at the drop of a hat. And yeah. These days, these days, everyone wants to use JavaScript for everything, and I understand. Yes. I understand that, but I don't. I don't like it. <laughs> um, I like DSLs, and uh, I like DSLs. You do. You know, these yeah. days with editor support, you do have to put more work in than you know back in the day when we were all using Notepad or whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, so HyperScript is a DSL for the web, and it's for the front end, and it's very event driven, and it is based on HyperTalk, which it was the scripting language of HyperCard. HyperCard was an old technology that uh, was on the Mac that was kind of the web before the web, but it was all local, but it was very cool. It's what I grew up programming in when I was very young. And so I just remembered that. And uh, it, I, I created HyperScript because when I create, when I ported intercooler.js to HTMX, uh, what I realized is there was a lot, there was this, this functionality that was useful in intercooler, but that wasn't really focused on hypermedia exchange. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to really have HTMX be a pure, simple, basic library that would let you do hypermedia exchange via Ajax. And like, that's what it was and that's it. Um, and uh, so this, but there was this other functionality and I looked at it and I'm a programming languages person. I like making programming languages. And I said, you know what? I think there's a programming language here. Um, and I, you know, it was, it seemed like it was really event oriented. I like events a lot. So I like it when library, JavaScript libraries, especially when they emit events, cause you can hook mm -hmm. in real cleanly to them. That's how I like integrating things. And uh, HTMX fires a bunch of events and that's great. But the problem with it is that um, if you want to hook into those events, you have to use JavaScript and JavaScript is 
okay at some sort of event integration, like there's on-click attributes and so forth, but that doesn't let you handle the general case of like, I've got a library that emits like a random event. Where do I put that? Mm -hmm. I put that in a script tag somewhere else? Like, you, do I separate it? And I didn't want that separation. So I wanted something you could embed directly in the DOM. Um, and so all of that kind of came together with this idea of like, okay, let's just do a scripting language that is complementary to HTMX, works well with the HTMX event language, and gives you an escape hatch when HTMX isn't enough to bounce out and do a little bit of light scripting. But keep the keep the focus on the DOM. So keep the the focus on keep the code in the DOM. So when you write HyperScript, for the most part, you're writing it directly in the DOM. So you're putting your logic right there. So it's a violation of people I'm sure screaming right now, separation of concerns. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, Talk to uh, Vue.js about that, where you've got like yeah. script and style and, you know, yeah, whatever exactly. you have here. Yeah, yeah. So HTML are, all in one file. Yeah. yeah. So people are doing that now. And it's, yeah. uh, you know, Alpine is another, I think, technology that does exactly that. And people are okay with that. There's right. a... There's an essay on the HTMX uh, website on the slash talk page called locality of behavior. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm trying to codify that as a, a way to, to push back against separation of concerns as a design center, which it's you know valid. It's we balance on all things, it's fine. But there's also this idea that when I've got a button and it does something, I want to look at that button and see it. <laughs> I don't well, want Well, you that show it exactly in the talk, like you're like, yeah. or in in the in the uh, white paper you're built there, the yeah. blog, yeah. where you, yeah. you show like here's the thing I want to do. You know, I want I want to do this event. Here's yeah. a jQuery and here's the one line of HTMX yeah. to operate yeah. on. Like, oh yeah. 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 And so and you can look directly at the thing. You can look at the button and see what it's doing. You don't have mm -hmm. to know about some other file that hooks in this functionality. So yep. um so hyperscript, yeah, it's just it's 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 got a funky syntax. It's kind of English language, natural language style. Um, it's just inspired by this older scripting language. I love it. It's a passion project. <laughs> you know, it's it's a fun little project. Not something I would if it doesn't grab you, I wouldn't push you to try it. Where you don't necessarily need to use that one. You could use, like you mm -hmm. said, the other one that you yeah. mentioned. Yeah, what you was it again? It was a lot of Alpine. Use Alpine because mm -hmm. Alpine is just straight JavaScript. You don't have to right. be funky. It lets you do embedded JavaScript, which is it's very and it's a great library. Caleb Porzio is a great guy. Very smart. Right. So, cool. um, but uh, and then you know it's got some other kind of funny features. Uh, you know, one one major feature of HyperScript is that it's something called async transparent. So uh, that means you don't have to deal with promises. Um, the runtime actually resolves all the promises for you. And so when you're writing code, you don't need to do awaits or anything like that. That's nice. The yeah. language itself. Because to me, if you're writing a wait, you're no longer in a scripting language. You are now yeah. in a programming language. You're yeah. not scripting anymore. With all and the things so, that means with exception handling and everything else. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I really wanted to make it higher level, you know, much uh, much simpler. And so just for light scripting, that's what HTMX, or excuse me, that's what hyperscript is for, is for light front end scripting. I apologize if you can hear my dogs, they're going crazy. Nope. Back can't even hear them, believe it or not. I have <laughs> dogs too, but luckily Perfect. I'm at the office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, my my dogs are like right behind my office and they're going mm -hmm. nuts. So. I literally can't hear anything. So that awesome. your, your, your mic's working well for that. Um, all right. So then I guess my other question is we're we're kind of uh, teeing up to talk about the actual talk is like, how do you manage these projects? Do you have contributors that help you out? Uh, are yeah. you all solo? Like, how do you how do you approach like dealing with feature requests and things like that? 
it's pretty chaotic. I got to admit, um, I do have some really smart people that are helping me. So thank goodness. Um, That's you know, great. Uh, uh, some people have just jumped on it, but it's, it's, it hasn't been, I don't do a great job of managing it. Um, I'm a good programmer, but not a great manager. And uh, so uh, it's, uh, you know, when I can find, I teach at a university. Yeah, you work, do that too. Yeah. Yeah. I work at a company. And so I don't have a ton of time that I can dedicate to open source work, but um, I do have sponsors for my open source work. And so I try and, you know, be, uh, you know, I try to take at least one day every couple of weeks and put in some good time managing the projects, but it's pretty organic at this point. And uh, we've been lucky. The community around it has been, it's, you know, it's because it's sort of a different thing. I think it attracts kind of a different crowd. Um, and uh, a lot of people that have, you know, if you're young and you've never seen the hypermedia model, you look at HTMX and it's just like, what is this? Yeah. Um, so we, I, I, I've attracted some older guys, although I've got a really young kid in college still from uh, in Turkey, uh, Dennis, um, who helped me out with hyperscript and he's unbelievable. And he knows the web better than I do. That's awesome. <laughs> Sometimes. And so, you know, I just think I, I got kind of lucky there. Um, I've got some guys that know uh, server sent events and web sockets really well, which I'm not, that's, I, I wanted to focus mainly on the Ajax stuff. So, um, so it's just kind of organic though. Um, and there have been times when my wife is looking at me going, how much time are you going to put into this? Doing this. Giving away for free. <laughs> it's 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. Are you going to sit down and watch TV? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Luckily, I got lucky. I mean, got lucky. Uh, uh, I did the HTMX rewrite right when COVID hit. And so oh, everyone yeah, you had was time. at home. Who was doing was anything home. else? There was yeah. nothing to do. I was like, all right, I'm not going to go crazy watching the news. I'm going to build this thing. And so that's good. Uh, so that yeah. helped a lot. That, that really got that over the hump. Um, but yeah. Uh, these days, you know, that both of the, both of those libraries are fairly, I don't want to say they're mature. They're, you know, still only a couple of years old, but they're, they're, I'm not churning features through them. Um, especially HTMX is pretty, you know, uh, is, is pretty good. I think the API is pretty close to right. So you also have extensions to it, right? Like yeah. someone could write an extension if they need to, I would guess. Yeah, exactly. So one of the, mm -hmm. that was one of the problems I had with intercooler was that I kept dumping features in. And so mm -hmm. I explicitly designed an extensions API for HTMX and then also integrated it, or at least designed it to be Very integrated cool. with, with hypermedia or excuse me, with hyperscript. Mm -hmm. um, so that both of those would take pressure off the core of HTMX so that HTMX can just focus in on exchanging hypermedia with a server. And that's it. That's all it's cool. So htmx.org is the website for the yep. HTMX project. Hyperscript.org is the website for Hyperscript and your big sky.software. Big sky.software. Yep. For Which all your cool. hypermedia consulting needs. Give me awesome. Give me so, so let's talk about your talk then. So you're going to give a talk at ETE in a couple of weeks. What, what, what's the main focus? Obviously it's HTMX itself, but what are we going to get out of you and up? 60 minutes of talking. Yeah, what I'm going to try and show, and this is one thing that I've had trouble with in general, is people don't, they, they, they don't, when I talk about, oh, we'll, we'll use hypermedia or we'll use HTML, this is the way I usually, people don't know what hypermedia means. Yeah. Um, they'll, they'll just say, you know, like, like the clunky refresh thing. No, we're not <laughs> doing that, right? That's, and, and I get that. Um, and so what I really want to drive home in this talk is just how much you can achieve using hypermedia. So the classic example 
example that I give is active search, where you type a little bit into an input, and then a new set of re the results update as you're typing. And that's the sort of functionality that most people, when they see that, they assume that, oh, you have to use view or something like that. Well, it mm -hmm. turns out that you can use uh, a relatively simple, like I think it's three or four attributes in HTMX, um, and you can use hypermedia to achieve that same user experience um, with just none of the complexity that comes along with view. And so people are suffering to some extent uh, uh, in the industry from JavaScript fatigue. And so here's an example where you don't need to deal with a bunch of JavaScript to make this happen. Um, and so, uh, so I, I'm gonna go through some demos like that, some of the more sexy demos, infinite scroll, mm -hmm. things like this, to really drive home the fact that, hey, you can achieve this user experience with hypermedia and with relatively simple annotations directly in your hypermedia. And we can stay within the original RESTful model and all that. And this can be a cure or at least a partial treatment for your JavaScript fatigue. You can maybe, you can maybe reduce your JavaScript usage to right. just the, what it was originally intended for, which was uh, small, uh, small enhancements to the existing DOM API that was there. Um, or if you're really adventurous, maybe you can try out HyperScript and see if that is fun or not. Um, so that's that's basically gonna be the focus of the talk is, is trying to demonstrate like, look, you don't need to do all this crazy stuff yeah. for at least these UI patterns. And this will help alleviate some of the complexity and the headaches that come along with that complexity in modern JavaScript uh, frameworks. I like the partial treatment for your JavaScript fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the white light next to you in the middle of the winter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we I, we need those. I live in Montana and we need uh -huh. to up here for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, you're getting north. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, I'm really looking forward to your talk at ETE. And thanks so much for taking the time with me today, Carson. Really appreciate yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Carson one. Gross. Yep. Take care. See you. For the week. Um, if you uh, remember to go to uh, phillyemergingtech.com, you will see that you can sign up uh, right now. There are the open registrations uh, still available. And if you use tech chat, all one word, uppercase as your discount code, you will get $25 off of that even after our early bird is over. So again, special thanks to uh, Carson Gross, who was a great interview. Check out bigsky.software and htmx.org and hyperscript.org. Uh, for all your interesting uh, HTML-driven front-end interactivity and hypermedia. Until the next time, I'm Ken Rimple, and thank you from me and Sujan Kapadia.